Well, uh, in this context, again, where we can't move around too much, this might be a little challenging, but let's have a crack at this anyway. I'm going to take a, a punt and guess that pretty much everyone here will have or does have a nickname. Would that be a fair punt? Just take a moment, if you're sitting near someone, to share your, a nickname that you're comfortable with. You know, you might have been called something a bit disparaging by family or friends. Uh, don't share that because we don't want to make you feel bad. Just very, very quickly, if there's something that you feel comfortable about. Okay, that's about enough. If perchance uh, there's anybody here today who um, does not have or has never been blessed with a nickname, come and talk to us later. We will sort one out for you. <laughs> something, something appropriate, something, uh, something edifying because not every nickname is edifying, is it? Sometimes uh, people pick on a particular physical characteristic or some kind of um, historical incident that suddenly becomes part of your, what the technical word is, your nomenclature, your name. Uh, and sometimes we are glad to move away from a context so that that nickname stays behind us, doesn't come with us. And... Uh, and is part of our past. Some people, by contrast, uh, carry a nickname through their lives. I have a friend who I keep in touch with whose name is Ian, and Ian, I'm sending you a good day today because I know he's watching uh, from a fair way away. Uh, Ian was called by his father, Duck. And you might think that's a little curious, but his two brothers also carried names, Goose and Turkey, Duck, Goose and Turkey. <laughs> And, and Ian embraced his nickname in the finest way. Uh, part of Ian's life was involved in uh, 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 the on-selling of superphosphate. He became known as Superduck. <laughs> and so, uh, rather, in a rather beautiful way, the whole community would know. If you said, oh, has anyone seen Superduck? They'd know exactly who it was and even shortened that to just Super. And so um, that, that's the kind of nickname that some people carry and super, if you're watching, as I think you are today, uh, we just want to say thank you for allowing, well, it probably didn't actually allow me to say it, but uh, I just think it's fantastic that there are occasions when a nickname is carried like that and uh, is connected to what uh, you do, as was the case for super. That is true also of Jesus. Over these past couple of weeks, we've been looking at some of the names that are used through the scriptures to describe Jesus, or names that, in fact, we use to identify him. Two weeks or so back, I talked about the, the word logos, the Greek word logos, which means the word. Jesus is the word, the final word of God, the pre-existent Christ, the one who existed before all of creation, in fact, the one who was involved in creation, the one who created the world, the Logos, in the beginning was the Logos. Last week, we talked about uh, another name. Who can remember what that was? Thank you. That is so encouraging to know that you've uh, picked that up. Emmanuel, God with us. Logos is only used a couple of times 
in the Scriptures. Emmanuel, just once in the New Testament and once or so back there in the Old Testament, but it describes a reality that Jesus is with us. He is a personal God. He is uh, in, uh, in our lives. He's involved with us. And today, I would like to speak to you about a name that Jesus frequently identified himself with. In fact, it was the name Jesus used the most. Last week, we talked about the, the name Emmanuel, the least often used, son of man, is the one used the most. And the question that we can think about is, why did Jesus use that title, Son of Man? What is significant about using that title, Son of Man? But before we talk about that, let me just tell you of a little story that happened just two years ago. It happened just at the cusp of that time when I was coming to be pastor of this church. For a month or so um, prior to uh, commencing here, I did a bit of a, a reconnoitre around some of the other local churches just to check out the lay of the land and uh, after I'd seen the rest I thought I'll just sneak in and see the best and so <laughs> came, came in through uh, the front door uh, in with, with what I hoped would be an anonymous kind of, I wasn't wearing dark sunnies or anything, but just slipped in quietly uh, in the hopes that I could come in and sit down and just observe what happened in a service, pull out my notebook, make a few notes, and that kind of stuff. What I did not account for was the secret police at the door. <laughs> <laughs> and as I got to the door, the double door up the back, there was, uh, there was a, a, a lady who, um, she would possibly be described um, in one way as elderly, except for the fact that her behaviour, her actions, and her involvement in the life of the church defies elderly, but she had white hair, she was fairly diminutive, and she's not here today, which means we can talk about her, and she stopped me at the door, and, and in the finest way greeted me and said, good morning, welcome to our church, and, uh, you know, I thought this is going to be, I'm going to have to be careful here, and she said, what's your name? And I said, oh, my name's, what should I say? Well, my name's David. Now, normally, that would have been fine. You know, the, there's no world shortage of Davids, is there, Dave? <laughs> Are you feeling the cold in this place today? I thought I should just point this out because over the past couple of years, every time I've had a haircut, David Bond has either texted me or made note of how good it looks and so today I return the favour. The fact that you've got no hair is um, it's just a wonderful blessing and I'm not about to follow in your footsteps, although I see you following in your father's footsteps to some degree. <laughs> I suspect um, that uh, when Jesus used the title Son of Man, he used it in the same way that I was using my name. It was essentially just a title. It was just a label. It was an unusual label perhaps, but not all that unusual because if we go back in the Scriptures, we'll find in the book of Ezekiel, for instance, um, God refers to Ezekiel as Son of Man when he's addressing him. It's a, it's a name, it's a description, it's a, a way of saying, you human, you person. And so in some ways, Jesus used that title, Son of Man, and I'm convinced that this is one of the reasons that he chose this one, Son of Man, as a common kind of description that would kind of fly under the radar in the same way as, uh, as we might uh, say to Simon, if I'd forgotten his name, I'd say, how are you today, young man, or something like that. 
Uh, it was a title that wouldn't arouse suspicion, it wouldn't arouse particular interest. It was a title that, um, th that would normally just get past the gatekeepers, so to speak. Except when I came to the church that day, I did not get past the gatekeeper. Because the gatekeeper in that moment, after asking my name when I said David, she said, it was one of those beautiful moments, leaned forward conspiratorially and said, are you the David? <laughs> and I said, do you mean like King David? <laughs> or David Attenborough? <laughs> no, 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 no. Are you the David that's coming as the... And here's the point. You see, if it had been anybody else, potentially, uh, no, perhaps not anybody else, if it had been someone who was not tuned in to what was going on in the life of the church, I might have been able to get past the gatekeeper by just using that name, you know, David, oh, that's another David, terrific, we've got 14 others here, come and join us. But because that person knew what was going on, they were alert to that. Now, in the same manner, when Jesus used that title, Son of Man, there were some who would have understood that as nothing more than just a title, Son of Man, person, human. But there were others who had spiritual eyes to see who understood that that name could be understood at a completely different level. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? For some it meant nothing, it was just a title, just a name. But for others it carried deep meaning. And I think one of the reasons that Jesus used it was that Jesus understood that in God's unfolding plan, his time to go to the cross had not yet come. And so when uh, he went through the baptism uh, there with John, as he started his ministry, if he'd stood up after being baptised and said, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, you know what would have happened in that space? Those Pharisees, the religious leaders would have had, uh, what's a good expression, they would have had kittens, they would have had an apocalyptic fit, they would have, they would have gone ballistic. How dare you make that claim? But because their spiritual eyes were not open to understanding who Jesus was, when he said, the Son of Man, uh, just kind of slipped on by them. Does this make sense? What we actually see through the Gospels, and, uh, and uh, there's a great study that I'm sort of tempted to do sometime, is looking at the process that Jesus went through in training his disciples, the 12 in particular, to become the, the foundation for a movement that he was creating. He spent three years with them and he needed to do that. It was a process that took some time and it would have been truncated, it would have been cut short if in that moment he'd stood up and said, I am the Christ. He declared that at the end of his ministry when he had done that time of preparation. But if he'd done it at the start, there would have been a problem. And so he chose a name, the Son of Man, that could be understood at a couple of levels and it, before we talk about where that title actually came from I suspect one of the same kind of dynamics is very much at work in our day isn't it let's just pretend we go out into our community and we grab a microphone we haven't got one handy or I won't even grab one now uh, and we just shove that microphone in the face of somebody down the street and say what does the name Jesus mean to you what is their answer likely to be? Well, it could be anything on a spectrum from a guy who lived 2,000 years ago and I know nothing about him. Sorry, Doug, am I moving around too much for you? Uh, it, could be <laughs> 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 it, 
It could be that they say he was a prophet that I've heard about. It could be it could be all sorts of stuff. It could be that he was a guy that got in trouble with the Romans because he stirred up trouble. It could be, as Mark declared last week when he was baptised, he is my Lord and my Saviour. You see, when God opens our eyes, our spiritual eyes by faith, we see Jesus completely differently. We see him through a different lens and the name Jesus means a completely different thing, doesn't it? We sang a few moments ago, uh, you know, the name above all names, the name of Jesus. To those of us who have had our spiritual eyes open, who God has given the gift of faith, that name means so much more than just a common name that was used in ancient Israel, the name Yeshua, uh, the name that was given to lots of little boys in that day. And Jesus chose, I think, that name, Son of Man, in a similar kind of way. Where does it come from? What is the background to this name? This is kind of interesting because to understand where this title, Son of Man, comes from, we need to go back to the book of Daniel. Now, if you've got a Bible or your device, please open that up. I haven't got it on the screen today. Uh, That was my mistake, not getting up early enough this morning and it would have had to have been about five o'clock to have been early enough. Daniel chapter 7. Now, the book of Daniel is, uh, is very, very interesting. We're going to jump into what is known as some of the apocalyptic literature. That's the section of, or sections in the Bible that are often very uh, vivid, metaphorical. They speak in word pictures, a bit hard to understand, uh, but they're here and it's well worth digging into And Daniel chapter 7 is part of the start of the apocalyptic section of the book of Daniel. It's probably not the section that you would normally read to your children at night. Daniel's a great book for children, isn't it? You know, there's stories like Daniel in the lion's den. Who remembers reading that one or reading it to your children? Yes, of course. Uh, There's other stories here in the book of Daniel uh, we, we talk, <laughs> try and convince our children that it's good to eat vegetables because Daniel ate vegetables and he was fit and healthy because of it. He was one of the first vegetarians perhaps. Well actually he wasn't if we, no we, let's not go in there. Um, here's the point, if, uh, if you were to read Daniel chapter 7 to your children before bedtime there is every chance they would end up having a nightmare because Daniel chapter 7 describes Daniel's dream and it says here at the start in the first year, this is verse 1, the first year of Belshazzar king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed, he wrote down the substance of his dream and he said, in my vision at night I looked and there before me were uh, four winds of heaven churning up the great sea, four great beasts each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Now, this is fascinating stuff because, uh, generally speaking, the Israelites were not a seafaring people. In fact, it would be even truer to say the Israelites, as a people, were actually quite fearful of the sea. When it came to importing goods, they... uh, they contracted it to others to do the work on the sea. They had this abiding fear of the deep and you'll see that through the scriptures quite often. And so it's no surprise that in this dream these four creatures come up from the sea. These are not attractive, um, benign kinds of creatures. These are dangerous, 
um, destructive, horrible things. And if you read through, and we don't have time to go into great depth here, you'll see that there were four of them. The first was like a lion, this is in verse 4, it had the wings of an eagle. Um, and Daniel watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground uh, so that it stood on two feet like a man. In some senses it's been humbled a little, it's had some of its power taken away and the heart of a man was given to it. Then in verse 5 we see a second beast which looked like a bear raised up on one of its sides, three ribs in its mouth, the destruction, it was told to get up and uh, eat your fill of flesh. And then there's another beast that looked like a leopard, it had four wings on its back, this is verse 6, uh, it had, sorry, four wings on its back like those of a bird, it had four heads, uh, that's scary, and it was given authority to rule. And then to verse 7, we have a fourth beast and this one was terrifying and frightening and very powerful and Daniel has not seen anything like it before because he doesn't describe it as anything that he's ever seen before. It's a beast that defies description. It's a terrible beast. It's an awful beast and uh, it has, if we go back to the verse here, it has... Um, uh, where were we? It had large iron teeth, it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It had a different form from the other beasts and it had ten horns and there was a little horn that came up from those horns. Uh, three of the first horns were uprooted and this horn, the little horn, had the eyes of a man and the mouth that spoke boastfully. That's an interesting word too in the scripture. We ought to flag any time... And we hear the word boast as a potential problem because God hates boasting. Uh, God just hates pride in, uh, in human capacity or government capacity or anything like that. That represents a lack of humility and dependence on God. And so all of this stuff is going on. There's all sorts of strange things that Daniel's seeing and if we had the time and the intention, and it's not the intention, nor do we have the time today to unpack all of that, uh, many commentators would believe that those four beasts are representative of kingdoms that would prophetically, Daniel saw, would rise and potentially did rise. Perhaps the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans uh, and there are other views about how that, uh, how that should be understood. But this stuff is going on and Daniel wants to say to the people that he's writing to, the people who are in exile, there's going to be some tough stuff ahead but there's some good news in this space. Because as Daniel looked, and here we come to verse 9, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days, a reference to God, took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. The river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him the court was seated and the books were opened. Now here we have a scene. What is the scene? It's not a party about to happen, is it? It's not a celebration, it's not a school fete, it's not some kind of entertainment, it's not theatre. What's being described here is a courtroom. And the Ancient of Days is taking a seat of judgment and in the scripture fire is used, uh, it's used typically in one of two ways. It either represents purification or it represents judgment and here we can understand it as judgment. Judgment is about to take place and so there's some encouragement 
for the people Daniel was writing to, even though God's, uh, that God's judgment will come slowly and there's much to be endured before that happens, God will raise up a time when the Ancient of Days will take his seat and sit in judgment over those beasts that have gone before. And even in the context of this taking place, this little horn continues to speak boastfully and just so we can round out this uh, introduction to our thinking about uh, Son of Man, Daniel kept looking, this is verse uh, 11, uh, because the, the, the horn, this little horn was continuing to speak boastful words and it was slain and its body was destroyed and it was thrown in the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, they were allowed to live on for a little time. Uh, but God in his perfect judgment has dealt with this evil. But that's not all that Daniel sees and this is the part that's of most interest to us. In verse 13 we read these words, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. One like a son of man, it could be understood as one who looked like a human person. One like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Note the contrast here, where did the beasts come from? Out of the sea, the son of man coming from the clouds of heaven. Totally different uh, origin. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now Daniel does not, uh, does not specifically or explicitly identify who this Son of Man is but let's take a guess. Who do we think it might be referring to? That was not a very convincing answer. Who do we think it might be referring to? Thank you. I know on occasions I ask a question and someone gets it wrong and they're made to feel awkward in that space so perhaps there's some reluctance to answer. But yes, these are the characteristics of the Messiah, aren't they? The one who has authority, the one who has sovereign power, the one who, uh, before whom all nations will bow, the one before whom every knee will ultimately be bowed. And I didn't make this point earlier, but I'm convinced that one of the reasons that Jesus appropriated the title Son of Man was to hold it in tension with another title that was used of him regularly, Son of God, affirming that he was at once the Son of God, but also fully human. Because Daniel saw one who looked like a Son of Man, who looked like a person. And one of the beautiful things about uh, our faith is that God became a man. Emmanuel, God with us and dwelt with us and lived amongst us and experienced all of the tests and the temptations and the trials that we experience. You remember a really well-known story uh, when Lazarus had passed away and Jesus heard that news, what was his response? He cried, he, he felt the weight of emotion that we feel he understands what it is to be like us. He was fully God and fully human. Here's the beautiful thing about it too, when God was facing those trials and those tests and those temptations, not once did he pull out, I haven't got a piece of paper, he never ever pulled out, let's just grab this, see if I can do it without falling down here, he never pulled out the God card and said, ah, oh, I'm just going to use my supernatural power to avoid this pain. I'm just going to use my supernatural power to... 
uh, get out of having to go through these struggles. Not once uh, did he do that. Fully human. And he walked through life just as we walk through life. He did it without sinning and so was qualified to be the Saviour. The Son of Man. And as we jump into the New Testament, we see on so many occasions these qualifications or these characteristics that are described here in Daniel, authority and glory and sovereign power being appropriated or being, uh, being applied to Jesus. Take Matthew chapter 9, verse 1 to 6, for example. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town, back to Capernaum. Some men brought to him a paralysed man lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. That's really fascinating, isn't it? Wouldn't it have been better just to say, Your paralysis is healed? But Jesus knew the deeper issue and the real need. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. You know why? Well, that's because only God can forgive. And so by making this declaration, your sins are forgiven, Jesus was claiming for himself something that only God could do, which makes sense to us. We understand that Jesus is fully God. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man has authority. There's that word from Daniel, appropriated by Jesus in his ministry. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus said these words, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. I had um, the enormous privilege a few years ago of travelling to Israel. I've talked a little bit about that. One of the highlights of that trip was an occasion where we went right up to the north of the country. We spent some time up near Dan, uh, the foot of Mount Hermon and then uh, around the area of um, Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi is a fascinating place. Uh, the water used to, it hasn't so much recently, it used to gush out of the cave at Caesarea Philippi and so the pagans, because it was a strong pagan area, would worship Pan in that place. There were many uh, shrines and altars. In fact, there was a temple to uh, the pagan god Pan in that place. It was a pagan hotbed. And rather curiously, Jesus took his disciples up into that place. And while he was walking with his disciples, and Matthew tells us this, uh, I think it's Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, um, Jesus was walking with his disciples and he said to them, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Who do the people say the Son of Man is? And that's a really safe question, isn't it? It's the kind of, um, as I read this, it's, it kind of reminds me of an experience I've had from time to time where someone's got some sort of grumble about stuff that's going on in the church. And so they prosecute it like this. They'll come into the office and they'll sit down and they'll say, uh, there's some other people in the church who have a bit of a concern about this or that or the other thing, you know. I I'm just here telling you because they don't want to do it. Um, 
it's, it's kind of a safe way of, of articulating your concerns, isn't it? Or at least they think it is. Because you and I both know, in actual fact, I'll be sitting there thinking, okay, who are these other people? And if there are other people who have these concerns, how about they come and talk to me? And if you've got the concerns, how about you be honest enough to say, I'd like to talk about this. So far in my life, I've never bitten someone's head off. I haven't throttled anybody. Most people who come into the office walk with all of their limbs intact. <laughs> so why are you frightened to talk to me? But sometimes we like to try and operate vicariously. That's a word we mean, and it means we like to do stuff through other people. And one of the risks there is in faith is that we try and live it through someone else. You know, I go to church because my family goes to church. It's just what we do. I do these things because of other people. I hold on to these beliefs because others believe these things. We get carried away by the river of belief that we're sort of swimming in. And the disciples were asked a question that was a really safe kind of question to answer. Who do the people say the Son of Man is? And the disciples kicked that question around. They said, well, you know, some people say Elijah. He was the one who was supposed to come back before the Messiah came. Others say Jeremiah, a good answer, another one of the prophets. Others say, well, perhaps one of the other prophets who's come back to prepare the way for the Messiah. Good answers. And then Jesus asked a question that we cannot avoid. And it shoots right to the heart of every one of us too because Jesus looked them. I have this image, I don't know whether this happened like this or not, uh, but perhaps as they are walking along the road, let's add a little bit of dramatic flair just for the sake of this moment. He stopped and he looked at them and said, who do you say that I am? Who do you say the Son of Man is? Because living our faith through other people is not good enough. It's never going to save us. It's not going to get us to heaven. It's not actually going to help us to walk in the Spirit. It's not going to grow us. The real question that we have to deal with is that question, who do you say the Son of Man is? Who do you say the Son of Man is? That's the question that we all have to address. That's a question that is always worth putting out in a context of a gathering like this where we've got people who are at all points of the journey of, uh, of faith. Who do you say the Son of Man is? Maybe in this space you've never articulated that answer. Maybe in this space you've always said, well, you know, Jesus is Lord because that's what I've heard others say. But what do you say? Jesus is asking that question. What is your response? That's what we have to own in this space. What is your response? And it was Peter who articulated his answer. Uh, he said, and he he answered this in a manner that uh, was completely correct, but even in that space, he didn't understand the fullness of what it meant. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Daniel had said, you know, this Son of Man uh, would come with authority. Peter understood that this Son of Man described in Daniel and Jesus are the same. And although Peter didn't fully understand that, he didn't fully understand the place of suffering in the journey of the Son of Man. He could not have understood uh, the death and the resurrection and the ultimate rule of the Son of Man as he may have later on. Well, he certainly did later on. But in that moment, he declared, you are the Christ. And it begs that question for us too as we think about who Jesus is, this Son of Man 
represented here in the book of Daniel, the son of man that we see here in the New Testament. Who is this person? Who do you say the son of man is? And there are still those who would identify him as a prophet, a good man, a teacher, a healer, a moral guide, but not much more than that. But the Son of Man ultimately stands in judgment over all the earth. The Son of Man is the one who will ultimately be glorified, who has been glorified by God. The Son of Man is the one who judges all people. The Son of Man is the one before whom all people will ultimately bow. And those of us who know him as our Lord and Saviour will be able to stand in that day and say, thank you for your love and your grace. The Son of Man, the Saviour of the world. Let's pray as our team come back and uh, lead us again uh, in worship. But let us take a few moments to uh, quietly reflect on that question. Let's go to a place of prayer. Lord, we thank you again for that challenge that you put to your disciples, a challenge that we recognise too for us is one that we have to address. Who is the Son of Man? Who do we say? Who do I say Jesus is? It's a question that invited a faith response. And here this morning we want to create a space where we might make a faith response. Perhaps amongst us there are people who have never owned their faith for themselves who have perhaps been carried in their family to a point in their life where today, Lord God, by your spirit, you are speaking and saying, today you need to own it for yourself. You need to stand up and declare that Jesus is Lord. I will walk with him as my Lord and Saviour. I will submit to his authority. I will be embraced by his love. I will declare myself as a child of God. And perhaps that needs to be made public in some way, whether through letting someone else know or whether through being baptised or whether perhaps just by standing and declaring it to the first person that we see after the service today. Perhaps there are others, Lord, who have been journeying through life and uh, living as a Christian vicariously. I come to church because my wife comes to church. She likes doing that. She has a faith. I come to church because my husband does that. He likes doing that. He has a faith. But today God says, who do you say that I am? Jesus asked that question of each one of us. Lord, the time is always right to respond to you. The time is always right to allow your spirit to open our eyes to see who Jesus really is. The time is always right for us to take a step of faith. And as we sing today, as your spirit speaks to us, there's opportunity to do that. We acknowledge, Lord, too, there's opportunity to be with someone else. There'll be teams here praying at the front after the service. If there's stuff that has been stirred up, perhaps a response that needs to be made, something to be prayed for, some questions that need to be addressed. We pray your spirit would just nudge us, would annoy us, would uh, push us, would lead us, would guide us, would even carry us when our feet won't do it, so that we might come to that place where you can do that work that you want to do in us, where there's life that needs to be surrendered, where there's uh, stuff that's gone on in us that needs to be addressed, confessed, repented of, asked forgiveness for. God, bring us to that place, we pray. We thank you that your spirit is with us and you're at work in your church. We thank you for the sense of excitement and anticipation that we have in gathering and for the work that you call us to do. God, bless this space, we pray. Fall upon us by your Spirit. 
and anoint us with your love now. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Please stand.